Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, y'all, I know you want to get to the podcast, but hear me out. If you are from the Dallas Opera Network platform, if you are from the Sirius XM platform, you need to get our show onto your airwaves. And this, my ad, new, this ad is for you specifically. <laughs> a new method in targeted advertisements coming to you directly from George Cedarquist's brain. I would love I'm, this show to be available at Target. I think that's what you meant. I mean, Opera Box Score has everything. You want to talk like about uh, uh, important singers, composers, works of art. Well, you can just look at any one of our Hall of Fame segments where we do an in-depth analysis of various works, uh, of various composers and singers. Uh, or you can look to our uh, Spring Training for Your Ears segments where we talk about specific operas and really do deep dives and deep analysis like in a fun or and and the, the way. opera everybody's been trying to but learn about. <laughs> now that, yeah. Yeah. But we're not just we're not just looking backwards, everyone. We have one third of our show every week dedicated to bringing you the hottest opera takes about what's going on in the current events. And uh, we were pretty focused on a lot of stories that have become popular right now before they were cool. So we're also your one stop shop for countertenors. We've had Nicholas Tamanya, we've had Justin Davies, we've had Anthony Roth Costanzo, we've had Justin Kim. If they're a countertenor, we probably have had them as a guest on our show. But if you're a countertenor who hasn't been on our show yet, there is room for you too. Last but not least, you know that we love sports on this show as well. If you've listened to sports on Sirius XM, or of course, if you're in Dallas, we know that you love football more than you love opera, and we know there is no football coming this fall. So you might as well check us out. Enjoy the show. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box School. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. From the Ravenswood studio right here on the north side of Chicago, I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by co-hosts Oliver Camacho, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave, and a very special guest. All right, Major League Baseball is back, the first major American sport to return to action since the pandemic began. It's been a long time coming. We talked through the struggles baseball has faced, past and present, and what signs opera and classical music might steal from America's pastime. Then, star of the Metropolitan Opera, Amanda Woodbury is our interview guest. The American soprano goes inside the huddle to discuss singing Constanza at Opera Omaha, the inner game of Donna Anna, balancing motherhood with an international career, and being a ninth-inning replacement for a Met radio broadcast. Two-minute drill towards the end of the show. Lincoln Center stops paying above-market interest rates. I have no idea what that means, but we're going to have some hot takes on it anyway. Got a lot of sports on the show tonight. And can I just say that I did, the Cubs went back in action on Friday hosting the Brewers, and I watched the highlights of that. There's obviously no fans in the stands, but there's all these sound effects that they've piped in, and it's utterly surreal to watch nobody go totally bananas when somebody hits a triple. 
classic sort of a sitcom laugh track move, I think. Exactly what it was, Weston. Ashley, have you been watching any sports? You know, I did watch some of the superimposed fandom on Major League Baseball, but, you know, what apparently is trying to come back is uh, high school sports because I am currently flooded on every social media feed with the sports pictures and portraits of my friends from high school's kids. So uh, I don't know what's going to happen in, you know, high school football in the Arkansas River Valley, but by God, the portraits are done and they're ready to go. Oliver Camacho, you're biding your time until flushing <laughs> bursts into action over Labor Day weekend. I, I hope that they actually don't go through with that. I don't want Serena to get sick. You know, she's a mom and she's oh. had so many she's had so many like freak things happen to her throughout her career, like standing on broken glass and like having a hard pregnancy and like all these things. She got an infection and like crazy. So just like, let's not let's just wait. You know, let's make it. She's safe. a national treasure. Yeah. All right, let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. We're taping on Monday night, July 27, the same day that the MLB postponed two games from tonight, one from Tuesday because of a coronavirus outbreak among the Miami Marlins. Miami just completed a series against Philadelphia. Seven more players, two coaches with the Marlins testing positive for the coronavirus outbreak has spread through their clubhouse. It's brought the total cases in recent days to at least 13. Baseball is trying to have a season this year, and we thought we might compare the return of America's pastime with the state of opera in the time of corona. What parallels can be drawn? What lessons can be learned? And to do that, we brought in a very special guest. No, he's not an infectious diseases expert, but he does have a disease. He's not even an opera expert anymore, but he is our beloved friend. He's not dead, but he is dead to us. Tobias Wright. Yay! There's gotta be. <laughs> George, I told you that incompetence. That's got to be a HIPAA violation. <laughs> <laughs> Figure out how much shade I can throw your way to, to have you back. So, Tobias, talk us through the the past, the return of baseball, the return of the major leagues, and then before we go further into the present, we'll talk about opera's initial return. Sure. You know, we talk about baseball, and everybody calls it America's pastime. And I think over the last, well, we're now in month six of a global pandemic. And, you know, what everyone wants is a return to normalcy. What everybody really hopes for is to be able to go outside and not be afraid, to be able to ride the CTA and go to Comiskey. It's not Comiskey, but I'm going to call it that. And, yes, it is. It's Comiskey. Right, right. Or to go to Wrigley Field. We want to be able to do those types of things and do it uninhibited and be with our friends and socialize. And I think there was a glimmer of hope to have the national pastime take place in our summer and that Major League Baseball really had an opportunity to step up, be at the forefront of what people are doing, because for the most part, people are still quarantined. Um, and if they're not, they're going to be again soon. Um, and so there was a, a, just a tremendous opportunity to unify, uh, to have a platform to be at the focal point of people's lives and to really have a sense of unity. Um, and they botched it. <laughs> I, I don't know how else to say it, but here we are. And, and I think we'll talk a little bit more here in a moment, George, but there are parallels here uh, with the opera industry and opportunities that they have had and that they've fumbled. 
um, and where we're at right now with baseball. Exactly. So some of the things that Major League Baseball tried to do on the initial return, you know, cardboard cutouts of fans in the stands, players not being able to spit. It's just like that performance of the opera with uh, to the plants. And what was that, Spain? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also with no spitting. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, away from the field, of course, players are largely on their own it's it's hard to sort of corral and control and 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 trace them ashley and, and weston what sort of things did we see initially um with opera and the way that it it tried to return before we get to the problems of that return like what were some of the things that, that you found compelling about the way it tried to return well, I think the thing that's interesting about opera is that uh, it's it's really kind of done a better job overall uh, in terms of how it's been handling these sorts of things. I think sort of the closer parallel here is the way things were being handled at the beginning of the pandemic when companies weren't sure when to close down, just kind of looking for the opera company next door to shut down first. Uh, I remember... Way at the beginning, uh, there were uh, all sorts of wild ideas flying around. Well, maybe we can have half the people in the audience. Maybe we could have, you know, um, just a, you know, just a televised performance. Maybe we don't have to cancel the season. Maybe we just, you know, want to wait. You know, and and it led to a lot of kind of heartbreaking last minute sort of cancellations. There was no plan. Uh, one thing I think in opera's favor and in classical music in general is I think there's more of an acceptance in the opera world that there needs to be some major changes before people can start going up and singing again. There's knowledge that the uh, singers produce a lot of the uh, air droplets, wind instruments produce a lot of the air droplets that are so potentially contagious. And as a result, I think there's been a a really big sort of um, push to... Uh, try to have the full comeback come as uh, not until we're ready. That being said, that's a long time (laughs) without any opera. And so we're seeing Zoom operas, we're seeing uh, archival footage, we're seeing um, uh, experimental things online popping up all over the place. Uh, But I think largely it's actually handled a little bit better than baseball and I think that the whole issue right now with baseball is a good thing to keep in mind if a few months down the line, a few opera companies start to feel a little bit more brazen about reopening before the world is really ready for that. Ashley, do you feel like there's some things that will determine Major League Baseball's success that can also apply to our art form of opera? do. Uh, it means we're going to have to trust a lot of people to play by the rules, and that seems to be something that hasn't been happening uh, in either of those places as of late. Um, I definitely have some some points on that, but I do think that, like, I've said this now once off air and now on, uh, necessity is the mother of invention, and we are now currently in this place where we can't do things the way that we would usually do them, and so if we want to try to even have an attempt to get some of the action of the things that we love, whether it's baseball, whether it's opera, you know, we have to try to do new things. You know, Weston mentions the Zoom operas. Um, there was also that um, 
you know, as much as we've gotten wrong and kind of how to do a lot of this, there are a couple of little glimmers of hope of how we've gotten it right. Uh, the first one is, you know, that show, uh, the production of Praviata that was in, was it Madrid? Mm-hmm. Where they had this socially distant stage production. They right. cut the audience in half. They cut the orchestra in half. Every chorister had like a designated box that they performed in. And, you know, candidly, Considering that the central character has respiratory issues, you know, it was kind of a, a real on-brand uh, production. It's, put it's the most relevant La Traviata <laughs> has been since the 19th century. Guys, yeah. guys, spoiler alert. Come on, Asher. <laughs> <laughs> I just said she had respiratory issues. I didn't say that she was on a ventilator or she succumbed. Uh, I had no idea she was ever sick. Well, I mean... She, she I am I am now waiting for the Reggie production in a couple of years where she does have coronavirus in the in the in the you know it's production. once we're a little further away from this you know it's going to happen oh for um, sure so there, there are these tiny windows of ways in which we're we're getting it right uh, and and it gives me the tiniest glimpse of hope for the future uh, I hope the same thing is true with some of the things that are happening in baseball I do think regionally. Um, I, I find there is no irony, nothing is lost on me about the fact that the Marlins, the team in Florida, were the ones where this outbreak happened. I mean, if we go to different regions of the country, people's numbers are a little bit different. I it, I had to chuckle a little bit morbidly in the tiniest way when I saw that it was the Florida team that was having the outbreak. And I think it makes me a bad person, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> I just want to I just want to say that. It's not an original idea at all. I was listening to the Daily Podcast, the New York Times podcast on Friday, and it was a really beautiful, four, like 45-minute long podcast, which is long for them, about uh, the return of baseball, the struggle to get this season mounted, the, uh, you know, the dispute, the labor dispute, uh, the importance of you know, baseball in our culture, and really the history of baseball and how it has declined as like the sport that everybody watches to being sort of almost, I don't want to say it's like the boutique sport. I mean, it's obviously still has a lot of fans and a lot of, uh, you know, advertisers and sponsors, et cetera, but it's no longer like the American sport and uh, it's struggling to, you know, for relevance. And uh, I feel like, you know, Yes, their season falls in the summer, so they're the they're the sport that really has to try to salvage something in order to have a 2020 season. But how does that relate to opera, and what is the relevance of opera? And you know, opera we always talk about opera's popularity being in decline and our audience dying and whatnot. But is there a parallel there, <laughs> and is our struggle right now to? have some kind of season, be it online or try to put on these concerts, these socially distanced concerts or whatnot, you know, are we doing the same thing that baseball is doing just so that we stay relevant this year? I mean, can we just accept the loss for this year? Or if we go away, will we not be able to come back? So here, so I'm a fan of an art form, but I got a complaint about it. I got two complaints. This art form, it's too slow paced and the ticket prices are too high, so I can't go. What am I talking about? Am I talking about opera or am I talking about baseball? <laughs> That's a mood. Uh, I, think, I think you're talking about both, George. Uh, Oliver, I kind of want to piggyback off what you were saying. And I think where baseball missed um, in, in launching a season was... You could say they, they got a strike? Where baseball... 
Yes, yes, thank you, Winston. Um, was that they didn't make it about substance. Uh, you mentioned the labor dispute. It wasn't about the product. So they had every opportunity to really present something that was, as I mentioned at the top of the show, not very gracefully, but unifying. Um, people want substance. People want to be affected. And I think art has the same opportunity. And I hear you on taking the loss. Actually, you know, today I had a conversation with an artistic director of an opera company that I used to sing at. And he said, if they cancel the season and just not do it, it's still $3 million that they're going to lose for the whole season. And that's just to pay, you know, the artist, but that's just to cancel it. They're going to lose $3 million. So they, and, and that's without liability and stuff, but baseball had an opportunity to really make this a unifying experience and say, Hey, this is what people used to love. This is, who we are. And I think opera, similarly, uh, there are hard conversations taking place in which, and we're not there yet. And there are obviously creative ways um, to perform and that have been uh, taking place, but there is an opportunity to say, Hey, how can we be thought leaders and just present something that people want to consume? It doesn't have to reinvent who they are, but there's an opportunity where people right now are searching for anything. Um, and opera, I do think, has an opportunity to be that thing that people crave or or could be drawn to. One of the things that struck me about the return of baseball was how many signs I saw up in windows, people I was talking to who got really excited about it. And of course, most of these people would have been excited about it, but I am not, you know, spoilers, I'm not a big baseball person. I was raised in the South, roll tide, just football down there. Uh, and when I moved to Chicago, I got a little bit of that through ephemera, but the, the energy with the return was so strong. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that I feel like opera companies are starting to reconsider during this uh, whole virus situation is the fact that that sort of community feel to it is so important. And it's something that opera, comp- opera companies have been historically bad at cultivating for the past, you know, three or four decades. Uh, and and it's, it's one of those things where there, there was a line, I can't remember who said it. It was in reference to, um, uh, in the wake of the George Floyd po- protests, I believe it was an opera company that was, um, uh, or, a, or an artist saying that we need to want to make sure we don't just reach out to the community. We don't want to just outreach one time, hey, here's a little bit where we're kind of doing a favor for you, and then you retreat back in, into your institution. It needs to be a constant, ongoing process. The opera needs to be integrated with the community so that when we are finally able to come back, there's this level of excitement, there's this level of um, of community around it. There's so much um, in sports that's based on like region, you know, it would, depending on where you were born, roll tide, you know, if you were born in a certain place, you have this connection to the local sports team. And with the decline of a lot of regional opera theaters, you don't get those same opportunities anymore, which is why it's so important to have, to reflect your community in your art, have them not just participate, but be a part of what's going on. This is why we need voices of color, um, why we need uh, performances that talk about, you know, new operas that address specific social problems that people are actually going through right now in, uh, in the present day. And that's what I think that a lot of these more experimental uh, opera projects going on during the pandemic are actually doing. People are seeing it for the first time 
in their homes, streamed for free. Um, we can, there's obviously a secondary discussion to be had on, you know, the use of archival footage and not paying the performers and things like that. But in the terms of the newer works, there's, there's a degree of that community building that I don't think we've ever really seen before. And it's something that baseball has and is trying to preserve. Um, but uh, we really need to make sure we're walking that line where we can build that community, but also do it safely. Uh, speaking of uh, going off of your point about the, the home teams, I, I feel like I should also go on the record right now. Uh, you, are, you are hearing this come out of a fully Chicago White Sox household. I know there's another team in town and they wear blue and it's adorable, but at least my team's owners don't fundraise for uh, the Republican National Committee. Just going to say it. <laughs> um, but back to... Uh, Which really does baseball. make them better at baseball. That's important to note, too. <laughs> it's been better at everything. Um, no, I mean, but, but back to this whole community point, you know, we currently are, you know, broadcasting from a city that has these two teams that have the ability to really do this outreach in the community. And again, my team, the Chicago White Sox, go team Anderson, number seven, um, they, they do a lot of this community outreach and it's really been ramped up in the time of the pandemic. We've definitely seen a lot of their, uh, a lot of their smaller offshoots of the things that they do in the community really go up. Again, my boy Tim Anderson and his wife created this thing called um, Anderson's League of Leaders, uh, and it's a it's a youth empowerment organization. And they have almost doubled, it seems like, their efforts as of late to really get themselves out into the communities. And I don't think it's necessarily so that they can like rebrand baseball and get people excited about it. I think it's just because they have more time to think about it and they've had more time on their hands as they've waited for everybody to come together and to a deal. So it's, you know, as much as I would like people to be able to feel that sense of normalcy that is summer baseball, it's really been great to see how some teams specifically have done a little bit more of that community outreach and reconnected to the communities that they not serve, but reside in. It took approximately what let's see your major league baseball started on thursday it's monday so it took approximately like five days for it all to come crashing down <laughs> with the, uh, well you told they told the players not to spit and you know yeah. telling a baseball player not to spit is like telling an opera singer not to not to sing you they're, know they're also not allowed to share doing? they're not allowed to share soap anymore and i just want to <laughs> go back and see what it was like for them to share soap before. I just want to make sure that that's the right call to make because uh, I'm not sure if that's necessarily something they need to stop doing, sharing soap, just a bar of Oliver's soap. Oliver's calling for herd immunity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, I just want to just throw in a tangent here because I think it might be fun. Is baseball, I mean, is opera to baseball as, you know, other um, genres of entertainment are to other genres of sports? I mean, is you know, basketball, hip hop, is football like Hollywood? And is maybe opera more like cricket <laughs> in this metaphor? <laughs> I played cricket for the first time. This is a true story two weeks ago. And I had the time of my life. So I'm okay with that. I still want I think there's a lot to be, to be said medicine. about that comparison, Oliver. Um, I mean, really, truly, when you think of the NBA and look what they've done, they're on, they, they are absolutely a player's league um and when you talk when you relate that to hip-hop i mean it's such an individualized genre 
Um, mm. We don't have stars like that in opera. And in baseball, I mean, name name the best baseball player. And this is a serious question. Somebody name the best, most famous baseball player. Of all time or now? Currently. currently. Babe uh, Ruth's ghost. Exactly. And that's my yeah. point. And it's yeah. Mike Mike Trout, whose biggest endorsement is Subway. <laughs> You know, and and so it's like I think that's a really fair comparison. You know, the the average person walking down the street, if you do one of those Jimmy Kimmel like, "Hey, do you know what women's suffrage is?" Yeah. <laughs> no, they don't. Um, and also, <laughs> they don't know who the stars are in opera, and they don't know who the stars are in baseball. And so it is a bit of a. I think that's a really great uh, comparison to make, Oliver. I don't really know what my point is, other than <laughs> it's not going to surprise me when suddenly the teams that are really you know the the tampa bay devil rays suddenly disappear in five years or a season such as this when there's no um revenue stream only you're only getting advertisement rights teams are going to disappear kansas city royals could easily disappear and it's just like opera companies too if you don't have if you don't have the revenue stream if you haven't connected with people that aren't part of a generation that already loved you we're going to be saying goodbye to a lot of them for a long time Baseball looks like it's going to be gone this season before it started. Will the same thing happen to opera if there are any opera productions live? The other thing that's going to be gone is Tobias Wright. (laughs) Have you on the show dropping by, sir? It's fantastic. You know, what I hope disappears before the next time we talk again is the disease you mentioned. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I love you guys. This was great. We Thanks for having you. me on. Um, we, we had to balance and, the testosterone, so we got rid of Matt. So, All right, coming up next, Oliver goes inside the huddle with American soprano Amanda Woodbury, winner of the Audience Choice Award of the Operalia competition and a woman who returned to the stage to sing Juliet right after becoming a mom. That's next on America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Opera Class, Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. Support for Opera Box Score is provided in part by Opera Philadelphia. Friends of the show, Opera Philadelphia, where Toby and I enjoyed 019. Just eating a, like, you know, like the Lady and the Tramp, one of the uh, 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 cheesesteak sandwiches to where your lips met in the middle. We actually went to this pizzeria called Alice twice because the pizza was so good. And we did share a, a couple, a little bit of za together. It was really romantic. <laughs> is taking its next step into the future of the art form with the launch of the Opera Philadelphia Channel, a global broadcast platform that will bring a new season of performances into your home via your television screen or streaming device. Uh, Weston, how are you, Weston, how are you streaming opera these days? What is what is the device that you're using? Um, have you ever seen The Matrix? I have a little chair that has like a little hole in my brain that I just plug a cable into while Keanu Reeves <laughs> watches and uh, uh, learns Kung Fu with me. Ashley, do, are you streaming anything? Uh, anytime Anita is singing with the Greek National Opera, oh. I just watch it on repeat and I tape my iPhone to my head okay, so that I, I can feel the warmth. I have to confess to being like the biggest Luddite, which actually is not a confession. Everybody knows that. But when <laughs> when the Met streaming, nightly streaming was new, I was using my phone to stream the, the Met <laughs> and then using my Apple TV to mirror what was on my phone. So it was yep. actually really difficult for me to engage on social media while I was streaming. 
which meant that I had to like pause the opera and then use my phone, get it out of the stream and then do something that's whatever, Facebook post, and then go back on. It was the most kind of low tech, embarrassing way to enjoy opera and to try to share it at the same time. I'm the worst. The Opera Philadelphia channel will feature a series of commissions by visionary composers and dynamic performances produced for the screen. Audiences can expect new presentations of David T. Little's Soldier Songs and... Ah, yes. Soldier Songs. Yeah, we missed it. It was going to be Nathan Gunn. Go on. Ah. I'm sorry, George. As well as Lawrence Brownlee's performance of Cycles of My Being by composer-in-residence Taishan Sori. And don't forget my boy Hans-Werner Hense. El Cimarron. Yeah. I think it's El yeah. Cimarron because El is like a Spanish article. So I think yeah, well, he was German, so I'm pronouncing it like he would have been pronounced at Oliver. Thank <laughs> very, you very much. Very good. And it's priced at 99 bucks and will be offered along with pay-per-view options for individual performances, just like pro wrestling. For more information, go to operafilla.org. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So I'm going to confess that I only learned about Amanda Woodbury after hearing her on the Met broadcast in February of The Marriage of Figaro. It turns out that she had already been heard on Met broadcasts of The Pearl Fishers and Romeo and Juliet. Maybe I missed those. I tried to listen to everything. I tried to pay attention to who all the singers are. But her performance of Contessa in Figaro definitely caught my attention. I began to do some research about her saw her online presence and heard this operalia performance where she sings Ophelia's Mad Scene. And then just a few weeks ago when we were talking to Alison Moritz, I learned that she was in the Opera Omaha production of Abduction from the Seraglio. Let's hear a little bit of Amanda Woodbury singing Achichliebte from Abduction from the Seraglio. I know that no careers just like happen overnight, but it does seem that like the past couple of years, things have been accelerating for you. Um, can you talk about um, what you feel like were some of the, you know, flex points in the past couple of years? You know, I think it started in 2010. I did the Dallas Opera Competition um, when I was finishing up my undergrad. And I met Joshua Winograde and he, you know, is at LA Opera now and he was at LA Opera at the time. And he was recruiting young artists. And, um, you know, I won second place, but he he really liked my singing. And he said that I needed to apply for the young artist program after I finished my master's. So basically, yeah, did my master's, applied at LA Opera, and then I was able to get into that program. It was the only program I got into. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of why I feel like that was that was like a really important thing for me. 
Yeah. And then I did, I did competitions. I kept doing competitions and that's been a really big thing for me because my last year at LA Opera, I did the Met competition. I did the Eleanor McCollum comp- competition in Houston. And I also did Operalia. And for all of those competitions, I won like second place in audience choice or for the Met, I just was one of the winners. And the Met competition, the Met auditions in particular, that was a big one for me because I got a job offer out of that uh, for my for the next season to cover Antonia in Tales of Hoffman. And that's, that's all I had like kind of going for me in my career at the time, like, cause I was gonna do maybe another year of young artist or something like that. And so that was kind of a big moment for me. And then from that, you know, I was doing Marilla in the summer and, um, and Jonathan friend came and saw that. And he, and from that, they were, they were able to determine that they, they could offer me Layla and Pearl Fishers. So that kind of stemmed from that same year. Yeah. It was a big year. So I just, just for our audience members who are beginning to find out who you are, can you describe what your FOC is and where you think your FOC is going? Because people who sing Layla and sing Antonia, they're sort of hard to pigeonhole, you know? I mean, I feel like it can go in the Lucia direction or can go more in the always Mozart direction, you know? Yeah, that's so true. Oh my gosh, so intuitive. Because I I feel like I I try not to pigeonhole too much, but I I consider myself Lyricoloratura. Um, and I love singing coloratura. I love when I get to do that. It feels really good in my voice. So, you know, there are a lot of roles out there that don't necessarily have coloratura or they have some coloratura and they still feel really good. Uh, so I, I like to do those things too. And I do, I do a lot of French at the Met. I end up doing, I see, I end up covering a lot of French and singing a lot of French. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, and, and then also Bel Canto with Lucia. I also really want to sing Lucia someday. I've covered it before. Really is one of my, one of my dreams. So, hmm. yes. But right now you are, you know, getting so much critical praise uh, for the way you sing Mozart. And I definitely want to put a pin in that topic and talk about Mozart in a little bit. But um, before we do, uh, one of our kind of acquaintances in common uh, is Alison Moritz, who we just um, interviewed a couple weeks ago. And I have, to, I have to say, one of my personal friends is Gary Thor Wado, um, mm-hmm. who I believe directed your um, abduction at Opera Omaha. Yeah. Can you talk to me about the experience of working at Opera Omaha with those to creators and maybe about Opera Omaha in general, because we're really a big fan of their work. Oh my gosh, I love singing with Opera Omaha. They are so on point with how they treat their artists and how they, and their vision for, for this art form. I, I loved it and I love the production we did for Abduction. Um, I actually worked with Allison on her first abduction. So it wasn't my first abduction, but it was hers. And we had a really fun time. She was, I, I didn't realize this. I guess she was like pretty nervous because it was her first abduction we did in, in Madison with Madison Opera. And um, she when we when we worked together in Omaha, it was so much fun. And I'd already worked with Gary as well, Gary Wado. And we had we just had a blast. Um, and and there was so much love in the room. And oh my gosh, it was just one of those, one of those kind of dream situations mm-hmm. where you know the people and you guys get along and you're just excited to make music and make it all about the art, you know? But it was really funny because she, we were in a rehearsal and everyone was there, like the chorus and everyone. And Allison stopped and shared a story 
about the first time that she did um, abduction. And I remember that abduction, I was like really in my head and I was like, I don't think I can do this role anymore. And I was like, I'm never doing this role again. And then there I am a couple years later, like doing it with Allison again. So it's so funny because she was just like, you're fine, you know? But, um, but yeah, she, I, she was, uh, I guess, kind of nervous and she didn't really understand, I guess, certain plot points or, or she's so well-researched. She's so brilliant. And she asked me, you know, what do you usually do in this part of the opera? Like what is usually happening on stage? And I was kind of like, oh, you know, I think that there's nobody there on stage usually. Cause it's like, I'm about to start an intimate dialogue with the Pasha. And she was like, oh. And so then she like restaged it to have like everybody leave the stage. And she shared this experience, like just like a couple months ago, right? In, in Omaha. And I was so embarrassed because she made it, cause she was saying that like, I kind of like educated her on like how to do her job. <laughs> I was like, uh, no, Allison, that's, that's very far from the truth. But she was just trying to like, you know, open things up and like show people that we like are in this collaborative environment. And it was just really special. She's, she's awesome. She's so much fun. Hmm. And Gary, Gary's incredibly, um, he has a great ear, you know, he really, um, is so in tune with the voice. And I, I always felt so supported and so comfortable. And like, he was listening to those breaths, you know, Mm -hmm. and he was really listening to like where, what I needed you know, sometimes you get a conductor who hears a certain way and he wants it a certain way. So he's going, you know, no, I really think he's picking at you for breaths or whatever. And you're like, I'm just thinking this. I'm just trying to get through it. This is really hard piece, you know? And <laughs> Gary was just like, totally like, whatever you need, whatever you need, but also here are some ideas for like some ornaments. And I was like, yes, like give it to me, you know? And he had such good ideas and we were able to re- incorporate some of his ornaments that he brought. He's, he's brilliant. You know, yeah. but he's like super humble about it and so much fun to work with. It's like the best combination. I mean, I'm so excited when uh, orchestras get to work with a conductor like him and really understand mm-hmm. what it's like to listen to singers, you know. And plus, he has such a great understanding of the style of the music. And, you know, there's usually not that much time to rehearse with these orchestras. But in the time he has, he definitely gets them to feel like they are doing something much more informed in terms of the, the performance yeah. practice, you know. So um, I, as I as we said before we started recording, or as I said before we started recording, um, I heard you first uh, as the Contessa in the most recent live broadcast from the Met, and I was trying to figure out who was singing because I missed the you know, um, Mary Jo Heat's introduction of the artist at the very top of the show, and so I came in in the middle of the first act, and uh, yeah, I didn't know who you were, and then I heard you sing Porgia Moore. I was like, wow, that was really serene and beautiful and it sounded like this singer was calm. It's like, I don't usually expect the singer to sound calm in that aria. And then we got, and then we got to Dove song. I was like, okay, you know, here's the real test. And you, you more than got through it. You sang all your phrases. You connected some phrases that sometimes people just need a breath in. Um, the A's were, had beautiful tone and you finished so strong. It felt like really triumphant. It literally brought tears to my eyes. Like, who is this person? And they just sang this aria like I've never heard it sung on a live broadcast. You hear it in recordings because you get many takes, you know. But in a live performance to sing Dove Sono at the Met in a radio broadcast that well, how did that feel to do that? Did you know that you were getting through it? Did you think, I'm doing this today. Like, I'm here and I'm actually singing this. Did it feel great? Or was it like, is that how you always sing that aria? I think the 
that, you know, I definitely is so surprised to hear you say that I sounded calm in Poggio Mod because that I was not calm, like for sure, because that was the, the beginning of everything, mm -hmm. of jumping in, you know, it's like definitely, by the time I did uh, Dove Sono, I was much more calm. And I think that the Met is such a great place because it really nurtures an environment for you to try mm -hmm. and to really, to really like take your time to be in touch with those moments. Mm -hmm. And I had seen, I've been lucky enough to see so many artists on that stage do that exact thing that I knew that I couldn't just go and sing the way I sang when I was singing this aria in undergrad, you know, that I had to bring something personal and something more, uh, more intimate to bring people to the story and what was going on. And um, I was able to practice that you know, when I did cover it in the fall, but, you know, it had been so long. So I hadn't really thought about it very much until that moment. And then it was just that kind of thing where you just, you find your groove and you just like, you just go for it. And, and it's like sink or swim, you kind of things like this kind of come through your mind, like sink or swim, or like, it's now or never, you know, just kind of like, just do it, like, just have fun and take the risks now. Because I'm sitting, you know, I'm sitting there going, I mean, if they don't like it, they could just fire me and I will have enjoyed it. You know what I mean? Like it's either way, I need to be okay with how I'm doing. And so I did, I just kind of like felt like give as much as I can and not worry about all the little things, especially in an environment like that when you, when you're putting up, being put on at short notice. Yeah, so how did you find out that you're going to be replacing? Was Anita Hartig, right? Was the original contest? Yeah, it was Anita Hartig. Yeah, um, I got a call. I was doing a matinee in Omaha, and it was a couple hours before the matinee. And they called and they're like, Can you sing a performance in two days at the Met for Marriage of a Girl, Countess, right? Like right now. And I was like, Yeah. I was like, yeah, totally, I can do it, you know? And then it, then reality set in and that's that's a whole different story. But um, yeah, they're like, we need you in New York um, Monday to work out the kinks and to go meet the cast and work with the cast because I'd never met them. And then, yeah, on Tuesday, we, we, did the, we did the broadcast and I didn't even realize it was a broadcast. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I was so like, I was... I was just like, let's just do it, you know? Like, we're doing it. Huh. It was crazy. It was crazy. So a couple of minutes ago, you said that you felt that you were going to retire Constanza. Um, what about Constanza is, I mean, it sounds like you can sing that music in your sleep, but what is becoming more challenging about that? Or is it becoming less challenging? Are you beginning, is it feeling more comfortable to sing music? in a lot of ways it's become more comfortable since that kind of crisis I was having with when I was talking to Allison. Um, what, what had been going on is I had some, the recordings I have online are from before I had my son, Peter. And so after I had Peter, I was called upon to do this, this, um, this Constanza kind of rather suddenly. And I was like, yeah, no problem. Like I've done the role. Like it's, it's not a problem. And I was breastfeeding at the time. I was like a lot of motherhood stuff here mm -hmm. is going on in my head and, you know, not getting much sleep. And I think I was just feeling like I hadn't figured out. I think even at that point I hadn't figured out 
how to work with the instrument that I have and what to do, what my, my instrument needs to prepare for, for singing like that, like on a daily basis. Um, as far as like, like even before performance, I figured out, actually it was this summer when I was working on Traviata that I realized I was performing Traviata and I was like, okay, I need to be singing like for 15 minute warm up, really, really strong warm up, like full warm up, 15 minutes, hours before the performance, like hours and hours. And I realized that and it is a pattern for my singing that I'm, I'm keeping now because ever since I started doing that and like really warming up the middle voice really well, everything just goes as soon as I start singing. So then I don't have to warm up very much before the performance. That's what I figured out from my voice. And it's kind of a very specific thing. I never understood that about myself. And so now when I go back to Constanza, it's been so much easier. It's been so much easier because I know how to handle these kinds of like difficult roles. If it's an easier role for me, that means, you know, maybe more lyric singing where you can like warm up in it and, and different things like that. Um, maybe I won't do that same process, but most of the time that's what I need and it really works for me. Well, I know you're preparing Donna Anna for the Met in the spring, if we get to hear that, not clear. Um, but I'll let you pick Donna Anna, Constanza, or the Contessa. Um, which of these characters can we just take a little deeper dive into? We should talk about, I mean, Donna Anna is like my favorite of all those characters, probably. <laughs> okay. So, so we should talk about her. Okay. So Donna Anna, to me, is like one of the iciest Mozart characters that there is. Mm-hmm. Um, she's so withholding of what she's actually feeling. And, you know, she's... She's, she's, a lot of it is like in her own head, you know? And I wonder how you, if you think the same way and how you communicate that and what can you do vocally to um, bring out whatever personality you think she has because the music is just so hard. You know, like mm. uh, Orsai is just a throat buster. Right. It's like 90 seconds or like 100 seconds, oh, but it's, yeah. it's like the death of most people. And then Non Midir is just so exposed and you're like walking a tightrope the whole time and then you have to bring out some coloratura and usually by the time you get to that, people are tired. So um, this is the same in Contessa. This is the same in Constanza. They're like these roles that have these iconic vocal moments and moments of needing just pure vocal beauty. But also we also want to get a character and sometimes you just get the vocalism and you don't get the character because it's hard enough, you know? So... Now that I've set that question up, like for you, impossible to answer. Um, how do you approach Donna Anna, and what do you want to bring out, and what what are where are your moments in the role for you to really do something uh, to show your interpretation of the character? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's really interesting because while you were talking, it it reminded me of some things. You know, I was thinking of Orsai, and Orsai is like first. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like her first big art, and then later on is Non Mediator at the like very end. And I was thinking about how Orsai reminds me of like the poison aria. Mm-hmm. And the poison aria is this like, yeah, it's the same kind of like vocal, just like you're Relentless, yeah. <laughs> you just have to have everything lined up and it's yeah. just like, go, 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 AAA or whatever, you know? And um, I think it's really interesting because um, Gounod put that at the end and he put Je veux vivre at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, Mozart likes is doing this thing where you're having to sing this heavy piece, like at the beginning, there's something so brilliant about the way 
Mozart writes this music. I think, I think it just, it just fits because as you go, yeah, it's kind of, sometimes in a role, you want to sing the heavier stuff at the end because your throats are, your chords are like more thick and yeah. you, you can feel yourself like giving that and your, your body's like ready for it at that point. You know, your body's ready to like relax into that feeling a little more. But like you said, with Donana at the end with Nomi Diet, it's like a tightrope. She is like, she is like doing these acrobatic things and and pretty much the whole role is like from start from the beginning she's like explosive and then it's like she's she's gradually going more and more into her head and just more and more trying to control everything and like spinning all these plates she's got her fiance over here who's like giving her whatever and she's just got a million things and she's not talking to anybody and she's just keeping it more and more contained. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Nomi did like represents. It's just like, just trying to control that initial like passion and like craziness. And it's like, it comes out in mm -hmm. Nomi did, but it's like, she's still like trying to keep it. Uh, she's just trying to keep everyone under control. And that's like the, the kind of person she is. And she's, I don't, I, I love the passion from the beginning of Orsai. It has something about it, just like sets it all up. And some, somehow with Mozart, he plans the, the arias to go in the way that is appropriate for the voice. Like, I think you'll find, like for a singer who's like, like with Juliet, like a lot of people say like Juli Juliet's two different voices. Mm -hmm. I just really think that composers, certain composers are really sensitive to how the voice is going to progress throughout the piece. A lot of bel canto composers are like that too. Like they put the pieces in a certain order and pattern so that you can really have the like serious stuff towards the end. And I think Donna Anna still does have serious stuff towards the end to sing because, because Nomi Dia is, it's definitely not a starter piece. Mm -hmm. It's, it has like both. It has bits of orsai. It has like, and then there's that fast, the, Forse, forse. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I just love, I love that music so much. It's just like so much fun. I mean, Sorry. I'm, I'm so excited to hear you sing it because there are different types of singers who get cast in Donna Anna. And right now I'm crazy about Rachel Willis Sorensen in that music. Like she takes her time for the Orsai. They're giving her the time because she's delivering the sound, you know, and then she's adding Rachel Wilson says she's just adding like ornaments yeah. and it's just like, oh my gosh, what an amazing like showing yeah. of this, of this aria. And then at the end, she, but she's, she takes the time. She's a really good example to me of someone I've watched consistently take the time. And it's always, it's, it's always motivated and delivered well. I'm so glad and, you said that because I think as an audience, we feel that. And I think there's something about Mozart operas, you know, they feel long, but people, I feel, are also rushing at the same time. And you have to let the moment be the moment. You know, you have to, I mean, I feel it's very Baroque in its way. It's like, yes, this aria is seven minutes long, but <laughs> it could be seven amazing minutes if you lean into it, you know? Okay, well, anyway, this is a great moment to pivot. You mentioned your son, Peter. And you mm -hmm. talked about a little bit about um, having to sing Constanza while adjusting to your new instrument. Um, can we go back to that a little bit and uh, just talk about what motherhood has, has done for you and what it was like, you know, to be ascending in your career and having this other super important thing happening in your life? I mean, I had um, 
before we decided to start having kids, I had different people in my life saying, you know, kind of giving me the impression that you really shouldn't, <laughs> you shouldn't have kids because you, they'll get in the way of, you know, all the things you're trying to do. And I guess I understand what they meant. Um, but it felt like they were, they were telling me I couldn't, you know, and I know there weren't really people necessarily saying that, but it definitely feels that way a lot of the time. And, um, I had a, another mentor, Erin Morley, and she, she wrote, like, she did an interview in an article where she kind of said, you know, nine months does not magically appear in your schedule and you need to like have the life that you want to have, want to have. And you don't apologize for that. And, you know, and she, and she even said that she decided to have her career didn't start taking off until like five years after she'd had her first. So she, she kind of inspired me because I was kind of just getting started. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, it'd probably be better if I waited and just really fully committed to like traveling and all these things. And I don't want anything to like get in the way of that because I'm really, I was just starting, but I was like, you know what, I'm going to trust that that's, that it'll work out. And I'm so glad that I just kind of blindly, it was pretty blindly trusting because there's so many things that you have to work out. You know, you have to have a really good support system. Yeah. And my mom was able to travel with me a lot in the first two years. And she was pretty committed to that because, you know, just we weren't sure about babysitters at the time with like for, for two whole years of their, you know, being really young. And so most of the time we worked with my mom and my mom would travel with me and um, in New York, we, we would hire babysitters and things. But I uh, decided to just go ahead with having a baby. And then it was crazy because actually I, four weeks later, went back to work at the Met after I had my son, Peter. Don't they say and that it takes like seven weeks for your body to recover? Yes, I was insane. <laughs> and, but I was, I was scheduled to sing Juliet. Okay. So I really wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I did it. You know, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but I just really felt like every step of the way, everything was informing me of just life, you know, in general. I feel like I know I was grounded in a sense that I was not before. And so for me, motherhood has meant so much to me. It's removed a lot of the anxiety out of what I do. Hmm. And people say, you know, if you don't deal well with anxiety, some people say maybe you shouldn't do this career, you know. I don't, I don't know about that. I just think that like, we all have to find our way. And for me, having Peter helped me to feel like a real person. And like, it's such a real thing you're doing being a mom that you don't have time to worry about the things that you used to worry about all the time. And you have to just kind of shorten and condense your, your stress patterns and your like, you know, process before you kind of have to shorten it all to really what matters. And that can, mean that your product is actually better and you're delivering a more secure product in that sense. And I just felt like my life was, was so enhanced and that the singing meant that much more to me because I was able, it was, it was a release and it was something that helped me to um, express what was going on in my life. And it wasn't like, it, it was no longer something where I was like, okay, and then I have to, oh, I really have to make sure this the very thing is like very perfect or I don't know, I guess before I would kind of like obsess over the first rehearsal, I still obsess a little bit over that first day of rehearsal kind of feeling. And then I just kind of would be up all night, like spit up all over me. And yeah. I walk into the first rehearsal, like, 
let's make some music, you know? And it was like, hey, I love this music. You know, I was like, hey, I'm really glad I get to do this. It just enhanced everything that I was doing. So a lot of the things you said dovetail with uh, an entire episode we did about motherhood and um, just the idea that you're you're obviously married because I just met your husband and um, I don't know what his career is, but that your mother was able to help. And, uh, you know, after going back to work, starting to like reprioritize, but still being able to dedicate the time that you put into your craft really into putting because you know that okay i have three hours today to practice maximum you know so those three hours are going to be used really well you know and also a larger thing that we talk about on the show is how americans are so prepared like in the opera world in general Mm -hmm. and how something like you will show up and you're you know you are amanda woodbury and like you're nervous or whatever for the first rehearsal but you might be at a different company maybe i don't know i don't want to say where but maybe in germany and then like some other nationality artist comes in and they are still learning their music, you know, on the first day. I don't know if you've had that experience or not, but. (laughs) I mean, no comment, but yes. Um... (laughs) Go America. Um, Well, I I feel like I've covered all the topics I've wanted to talk about. Um, I'm just so excited that we got a chance to meet you. And, um, you know, I love this performance that you gave uh, at Operalia, this, uh, this Ophelia Mad song. is so good. Um, have you had a chance to sing that role? Oh, it's like such a sort, it's like such a sad thing. I was going to Hong Kong mm-hmm. in July, this July, to sing it. Oh. And I didn't make it. Was that going to be your first? That was going to be my role debut. Oh, wow. oh actually, it was going to be May. Sorry. Okay. I was doing something. Yeah. There were some things that were going down that I was really excited about. But yeah, I was going to be doing Ophelia in May at Hong Kong, Opera hmm. Hong Kong. And do you think that your voice is going to be able to do roles like that for much longer? Or you feel like you're going to stay in that fog? Or... I don't know. I feel like, yeah, pe- people people see you as something and then you, you can get stuck. I mean, because people will offer you things mm-hmm. and then you can say yes or no, depending on what you like to do. Um, I really like keeping lighter music in my rep because it, it really helps my voice. I don't know how long that will be the case, but I, I really do like keeping Constanza is kind of like one of those in-between roles yeah. where it's like so vocally demanding, but it's not light, you yeah. know, it's like intense. So that's kind of an interesting situation too, where, where I started to feel like, yeah, sometimes I'm like, I don't know if that's right, but then it starts to feel better the older I get. Yeah, Layla and Juliet totally fall in line with that too. Like, yeah. Layla's, you know, her aria doesn't even go that high, you know. But there's that, no. yeah, there's like that serenade. No, I forget Layla what it's called. Like, thing. yeah, and then the, like you said, like with the Juliet with the Juve Vibra, which is you know baby coloratura, but um, yeah, the poison aria like destroys so many sopranos while they're singing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, they call it, they shorten it at the Met to, or a lot of places to Romeo. They yeah. just call it Romeo. I'm like, thanks. I don't think so. <laughs> well, I hope that um, we get back on track. I, I know everybody hopes the same thing, but I'm really looking forward to hearing your Donna Anna and more stuff after that. Um, and thank you for being our guest. Yeah, I'm so excited we got to chat. And I feel like I didn't get to know you very well, but. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but this is awesome what you guys are doing and I really appreciate being part of it so yeah, thank you
This just in the two minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opperland this week. Stop calling him the Black Mozart. That's the message from the New York Times, an article about 18th century French composer Joseph Bologna. The son of a plantation owner and an enslaved woman, Bologna has long been relegated to a footnote in the history of classical music, but his story is so much more than that. Link to that article will be on our website. Also in the New York Times, the out gay Polish director Krzysztof Orlikowski is preparing a production of Electra for the Salzburg Festival and is quoted as having said, quote, the worst public in the opera are the obsessed gays. All these rich guys with nothing to do in their life, just following Anna Netrebko or Jonas Kaufmann on all continents. This is not a real audience for me. People like this, he said, and audience expectations of opera, that there will be pyramids in Aida, for example, can make the art form into a prison. But I like my triumphal scene dancers in nothing but a dance belt, says this gay. American soprano Lauren Michelle was quoted in a recent Washington Post article on racism in opera. On her website, she's expanded her thoughts, adding, quote, racism and oppression are deeply rooted in the American opera world. If we are not capable of acknowledging this, how will we ever attain change? Natasha Rule, a PhD in historical musicology from Harvard, compares Lyon's political protests and an epidemic in the 1690s with the 2020 COVID crisis for Early Music America. Link to the article can be found on our website. Yesterday evening, Lyric Opera Chicago presented Lawrence Brownlee and Friends, The Next Chapter, a virtual concert spotlighting Black musicians and Black musical culture. It's our determination for Lyric to play a very active, dynamic role in fighting systemic racism, says Lyric's general director, Anthony Freud. It's going to be a long, focused, evolving process to which we are fully committed. And we plan to issue an initial action plan sometime in September. But I didn't want to lose any time. Opera Philadelphia has announced a revision to their 2020-2021 season, which includes the launch of a new online platform, the Opera Philadelphia Channel. Planned production of Verdi's Macbeth was postponed until 2023. The world premiere of Women with Eyes Closed by Jennifer Higdon and Jerry Dye was postponed until 2021. And concert performances of Oedipus Rex have been postponed to 2022. Opera Philadelphia plans to return to the Academy of Music in spring of 2021 with performances of Tosca. Elena Janicelli, who served as vice president, uh, a member of the casting committee, committee and a board member for Regina Opera Company, has been removed from the company completely. Her Facebook post on July 24th stated, quote, I would like to paint on the 12th Avenue, opera singers matter. Anyone can paint, paint Black Lives Matter with paint that my taxes buy and I pay 24 policemen and three sergeants to guard it. Crime is up, but 30 men protect a mural of letters. They want to raise our taxes and defund the police. Action to remove Yannicelli was swift after public outcry on social media. Did Pountney, artistic director at Welsh National Opera, as well as the Bregenz Festival, has used the past few weeks to make a work that responds directly to the COVID-19 crisis and which will be performed live in front of a live audience at Grange Park Opera's space, the theater in the woods in England in September. A Feast in the Time of Plague, composed by Alex Wolfe, is based on a fragmentary play by Alexander Pushkin. 
Lincoln Center has agreed to pay two Wall Street banks $73 million to end its contracted interest rate swaps, according to Bloomberg. Interest rate swaps are forward contracts in which one stream of future interest payments is exchanged for another based on a specified principal amount. And I have no idea what I just said. Zach Mickelstein, please help me. The Lifetime Achievement Award at the Österreichische Music Theater Prize next week will be awarded to guess who? Placido Domingo. Great. This fall, famed pianist Helmut Deutsch will be releasing, quote, memoir of an accompanist. The book details Deutsch's career, which has spanned over 50 years, and his work with the likes of Jonas Kaufmann, Ian Bostrich, Grace Bunbury, Diana Damrau, Thomas Kwasdok, Yumiko Samejima, and Anne-Sophie von Otter. We hope the tea is as good as the English translation. Exit stage right, famed French director Humbert Camerlot has died at age 56. Monique Borelli has died at the age of 59. The French soprano was stabbed by her 18-year-old son and passed away at a hospital in Marseille. Polish bass baritone and actor Bernard Ladish has died at the age of 98. Ladish can be heard in the Collector's Choice 1959 recording of Lucia de Lammermoor with the most famous singers of that time, Maria Callas, Pierre Capaccilli, and Ferruccio Tagliavini, conducted by Tullio Serafin. In the good news corner, if you're anything like me, you've spent most of the past few months of quarantine playing Animal Crossing. Apparently, so has the team at Due Donne Productions, who have created a 30-minute production of Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel, performed entirely within the video game. Check it out on their website. And on this day, Monday, July 27th in 1877, it was the birth of Hungarian composer Ernst von Dohnanyi in Pozzani, Pressburg. In 1915, the birth of Italian tenor Mario del Monaco in Florence, Italy. In 1927, um, Kurt Weill and Paul Hindemith's radio cantata, Der Lindenbergflug, or Lindenberg's Flight, at the Baden-Baden Musiktag Festival in Germany was premiered. In 1940, it was the birth of iconic German choreographer and creator of the movement style called Tanztheater, Pina Bausch. In 1952, it was the birth of American soprano Carol Vanis in Los Angeles. In 1996, Tobias Picker's opera Emmeline premiered in Santa Fe. In 1967, out of order, sorry about that, the Santa Fe Opera House burned to the ground. And in 1974, on July 27th, it was the first performance of Passatieri's Signor Deluso in Vienna, Virginia. That's your two-minute drill. This is Opera Box School. With George Cedarquist, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho.
That was Bernard Ladish singing O Tu Palermo from Verdi's I Vespri Siciliani from a performance in Palermo from 1957. I actually promised um, Tobias that he could pick a Mario de Monaco clip, but uh, I guess uh, death trumps birth. That's not funny. <laughs> what, a, what a dark sentence to say. <laughs> quick quick retraction. Um, George, I believe Umber Camerlo was 76, but he looked like he was 56. I think that's where the confusion was. You know, those French, they always mm. look so fresh. You know, I, um, I, I don't play any video games, but my kids have been playing Animal Crossing, and they also love the opera by Humperdinck. So I think I might try and figure out how to help them access this. I, I watched it today. It's on YouTube. Um, it is delightful. Your kids will absolutely love it if they're anything like me, a late 20s man. <laughs> so I'm and gonna, I, I assume they are. I'm going to jump in here and say that the name of the article that we referenced in Early Music America is Plague Revolt Opera. Lessons from a Bankrupt Opera House in 17th Century France on Early Music America. Not a place where I expect uh, for there to be super interesting articles about our business, but it's remarkable how similar the situation was in Lyon with um, an epidemic and uh, riots happening at the same time and an opera house going bankrupt and figuring out how they were going to come back and what strategies they took. And there's a lot to be learned there. And I think we might even come back to this article and talk about some of its points on a future episode, mm. if it's a slow news week. That's great. I, well, do, I do want to say it's a, it's a good thing sometimes to come across these articles just to remind yourself that while in many ways these times are very unprecedented, um, it's not completely new. Uh, and there are things to learn from the past that are of value. All right, Ashley Hardgrave, let's wind you up and let you go. <laughs> go take it away, girl. Oh, salve Regina, indeed. Poor Regina Opera Company. Whoo, this was a rough week for them. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of people before this were like, Regina who? Uh, no, I mean, here's the thing. Like, There's two, two problems here. Um, number one, you could just be respectful of, you know, a sociopolitical movement that a lot of people really, really care about. But also maybe don't hold 17 positions in the same nonprofit organization at the same time. I mean, she was VP, she was on the board, casting committee, uh, custodial chair, head of catering, receptionist. I don't know what else she was, but like, <laughs> one, don't be all of those things for a company. That is the first sign that a company's not doing it right. Um, but also number two, come on, Elvira, Elmira, whatever her name was. It was like, we worry about how out of touch fans of opera and people that run opera are. And this whole quote, and I watched this thing go down in real time on the social medias. It was, it was the most, one of the most tone deaf things I've seen in a long time. And that's saying something. Mm. Um, so I hate that it had to happen. I hate that anybody had to hear it or experience it. I hate that this is the way that more people are learning about Regina opera, but we've, we've just, we got to do better. We got to do better. And I, you know, I didn't, see a way that she could stick around after those comments. Well, that's why we need to focus on, you know, when we're talking about diversity and inclusion and different ideas, it cannot end with just the singers you have on stage. It needs to be administration. It needs to be musicians in the pit. 
It needs to be whoever you contract to out for things. It needs to be across the board. It's got to be in the administration for sure. I mean, and I'm glad that, you know, Anthony Freud is like, whatever, using Lawrence Brownlee to make a point. But um, Lawrence Brownlee actually (laughs) is amazing at what he's doing. Him, Him and all these and the Black Opera Alliance and all these singers who are coming forward and leading discussions and being very active, you know, um, in our community to highlight these things. I mean, I just watched a um, video, I think it was Opera Orlando. God, I can't even remember. But everybody's doing them now. And they're all so, there's so many stories that are being told that it's embarrassing how long it's taken us to acknowledge this as a problem. And, you know, Anthony Freud, you know, whatever he did, he made this statement. But it was really Larry Brownlee who curated this concert. And it was pretty similar to the concert we talked about last year. Um, some of the selections actually were exactly the same. But um, Lyric Opera, Ryan Opera Center, um, has brought on two new um, apprentices or fellows. And they're both black. One is from South Africa and one is somebody mm-hmm. I heard at Opera Philadelphia actually last year, Martin Clark. And um, they also brought Will Lieberman, so this concert was an alumnus, and Whitney Morrison, who's an alumna. Um, and it was a great concert. And I think you can watch it on YouTube right now. Uh, go to hear Larry Brownlee sing Angels Watching Over Me and to hear Whitney Morrison sing this gospel mashup. It's incredible, and it's galvanizing. Uh, that's a concert called Lawrence Brownlee and Friends, The Next Chapter. It's a virtual concert. It was fantastic. I'm also really interested to see, uh, we mentioned in that story, um, uh, a, a, quote, initial action plan coming in September, um, which does seem a little bit late uh, in some ways. But if it's a comprehensive plan they really think about, uh, it could be uh, a, a leader, a company of this size, the size of the Lyric. I hope they really, uh, when it comes out, I'm sure we'll probably devote a whole segment to breaking it down and, and uh making sure it's up to snuff. Uh, But I think that this is one of the things that we've seen a lot in, especially with sort of the more established opera companies, a lot of them will do, will give positive statements, but be very vague about it. There's no specific timelines to when they'll have this diversity thing figured out. Um, And I, and this is the, one of the first times I've heard from the, uh, uh, at least I've heard, I've been, I might not have been the loop on this one, uh, heard the lyric specifically give a date for some kind of plan. And I'm very excited to see what that could possibly be. I'm utterly confused by Christoph Vorlikowski's comments around this production of Electra at the Salzburg Festival. The, the quote, you know, the worst public, which he means audience, the worst audience in the opera are the obsessed gaze. Like, I... What what's he getting at here? Well, <laughs> I think that's a question for Oliver. <laughs> no, I mean the, the funny thing is actually a pretty wide ranging uh, article and interview with with Barlakovsky and his career, and how mm-hmm. he you know used to be like an enfant terrible and he was like very pushing the envelope with sexuality on the stage, and maybe he's not even that original anymore, but he was at one point in his career. But him just feeling, I mean, this is the, the comment and the, art, the article that drew the most attention that was like pull quoted and we pull quoted it ourselves, uh, criticizing these gay super fans who have nothing but, you know, expendable income to go follow around, you know, people like Anna Trepko and Jonas Kaufman. And, you know, I, I, I know what he's talking about. I think 
I actually know people who spend all of their money on going to follow their favorite singers or going to hear opera. And we need people like that in the audience. Sometimes, you know, they're the ones that are, you know, paying full ticket prices and, you know, going to all the uh, extra events and they are part of our community. But um, yeah, he really does kind of criticize them and um, maybe he's accusing them of keeping opera to opera conservative by conflating those things like the idea that, you know, uh, Aida's need to have, you know, pyramids and elephants and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I, I get what he's saying. I'm not sure he said it the most graceful way. And it does sound a little bit self-hating about, um, you know, being a gay man, especially from a country like Poland, which is not really known for its civil rights for gays, you know. I was absolutely going to say the irony that I found in this of, of the, the out director being so critical of like a stereotypical member of the homosexual community coming from a country like Poland, where things right now are in such dire straits when it comes to the LGBT community. It doesn't have a ton to do with the article, but I couldn't help but notice that, you know, he's he's got a whole lot of other fish to fry in terms of just being mad at gays that want pyramids and Aida. But, you know, he, he said what he said. Let the gays have their pyramid. <laughs> I just want the Weston Williams story. I just, <laughs> I just want the dance belts and the triumphal scene. So, <laughs> all right, let's wrap this show up. Oh wait, before we wrap it up, I want to go into our our in depth uh, coverage of this story about interest and the Lincoln Center <laughs> money, and we're gonna break it down. It's got big implications, probably. Uh, okay, we can end the show. I'm sorry, Weston, we're out of time. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Thanks for hanging out with us on the show. Wherever you are, however you're listening, whenever you're listening, good call, bad call to wrap it up. Oliver. What do you got? I forgot to mention this last week, but uh, Des Moines Metro Opera, their production of Billy Budd is available for free right now on the YouTubes and on their website. Uh, So check it out to see our friend Zachary James as uh, Claggart. And our little nugget, Harry Rose, wrote a review that was published in The Observer, and it's a great review. So... You know, put into your search engine, Harry Rose, Observer, Billy Budd, to read how smart that kid is. Weston Williams. Well, on the subject of the Animal Crossing opera, I do want to say my good call for today is the fact that my favorite villager on the island, a red duck named Ketchup, it is her birthday today. And as soon as we're done recording, I'm going to go celebrate with her. Actually, Hardgrave. Uh, It doesn't necessarily have much to do with music, but I think we need the reminder. Uh, I got one in the last uh, week. I I lost a friend that was was close to me, and I I didn't get a chance to resolve a lot of things with him that I had hoped for. And what it has brought to the front of my brain is we have to take advantage of the moments we have. We we can't postpone joy. We got to eat that cake. We got to call that friend. We got to tell them we love them. And I would encourage all of you to find a way to actively act on joy sometime this week for yourselves, for the spirit and memory of my friend. And with that, you guys are great. And I really love you guys. Mm. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com, N O R M W O O D E L. 
Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Opera Box Score. Podcast version of our show available wherever you get your pods. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and our guest Tobias Wright, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as your eyeballs dry out from watching too many opera streams. Look, you got to stay moisturized. We're back with an all-new podcast next Wednesday, August 5th, with a conversation with conductor and composer Odaline de la Martinez, plus more opera headlines, more hot takes, more tater tots. Join us. Join us.